0: So, this morning's call to worship is today's passage as well from John chapter 9. So, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Listen carefully because this is our text for today John 9, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who had previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he's like him. And he kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes open? And he answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Sloam and wash so i went away and washed and i received sight and they said to him where is he he said i do not know let's pray together father thank you for uh, gathering us in this place this morning lord we know that none of it is by accident that it is by design that we are together in this place lord we are so grateful that you are here and that you're you're listening to us pray that you love us enough to incline your ear towards us. And so this morning, God, as we look at this passage, I pray that you will soften our hearts, that you will till that soil in our hearts to see and hear the things that we need to see and hear. For your glory and our good, we pray. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, if you would. Okay, so I'm aware of the meme that was going around uh, (laughs) social media yesterday. And that's about right. Uh, It's been since early October that we were in the Gospel of John, and we're back. So thank you for your patience in that. Uh, But I also want to say this as well, just reflecting over the last three-plus months, that for the sake of balance, it is good when a church looks at Scripture both from a macro and a micro level. And we've been able to do that recently. In our last two series, first our, our Reformation series and then our Advent series, we had a chance to fly really high. Over church history, over the great dispensations that we see in Scripture, and, and to see things from 30,000 feet, to see the big picture that God is working in human history. We also had a chance over the last two weeks to look at some pretty lofty ideas, to talk about the necessity of prayer, and then to look at God's biblical truth about sexuality and gender. Those are big topics. So we've done a lot of macro recently, and that's good. But now it gives us a chance to come back into John and to go micro and to focus our attention on the details of Jesus' ministry while he was on the earth. And with that, let me uh, put up our, our, our outline. So you can see we've been doing this since we started John, which is I don't know how many years ago we started John. We, we talked about just a basic outline of, of the book, starting with what we call the prologue of Jesus Christ, the first 18 verses, which, of course, is all about who God is, who Jesus is from eternity past. Then the prelude to the ministry, the preparation of Jesus' ministry, primarily through John the Baptist, as we close out chapter 1. Then we have this massive section in the middle, chapters 2 through 12, the public ministry of Jesus. And in that public ministry, we get the seven signs that John is famous for, the seven signs or miracles that Jesus does that validate his identity as the promised Messiah. Today, we're looking at the sixth of those seven great signs or miracles that Jesus does. Then the next section is going to be Jesus's private ministry, and that's where he's going to focus his time on teaching his disciples. Then, of course, we have the passion of the Christ and the perfection of the risen Christ as we close out the book. Now, Let's refresh our memories of where we've been. It's been quite a while. So let's talk about chapter 7 and 8 before we get to 9 just so that we remember what was going on. When we were in chapter 7, you might recall Jesus was up in Galilee and he made this decision to go to Jerusalem to participate in the Jewish festival of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And we talked a lot about that back in October because of the the meaning behind this particular feast. Some of Jesus' most important statements are made during the Feast of Tabernacles, and the imagery that he uses comes out of the meaning behind the Feast of Booths. For example, I described for you the very famous water ceremony that took place each day during the feast with much pomp and circumstance, with the, the priests and everything. This water ceremony, this water is scooped up and poured on the altar. And then Jesus, on the last day, The great day of the feast, it says, he stood up in the temple courts. With that water ceremony in mind, he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Saying essentially, look, the feast is over. There's no more ceremony. There's no more pouring the water on the base of the altar. I have the water that you need. And then he went on to speak, as he had previously uh, in Samaria, about this idea that anyone who trusts in me, living water will flow out of him or her. That was chapter 7. Then in chapter 8, we were reminded about these four huge menorahs that were set up in the center of the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. And the glow from these lights, it was said, lit up the entire city of Jerusalem. And the people celebrated. They would carry torches and they would dance and they would sing in the, in the courts of the temple. And just like the water ceremony, there was a connection to Israel's history. The lights represented the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night when Yahweh protected and guided his people Israel through the wilderness. But then when the feast was over, once again, Jesus stands up. Again, with these, these massive lights in the fresh in their minds, he says what? I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So these two great Symbols, right? Living water and the light of life. These two huge moments in the ministry of Christ that come out of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, as we wrapped up chapter 8 back in October, we finished with this very famous section. And let me just read a few verses from it because this is important to see how chapter 8 ends. You'll probably recall Jesus says to this Jewish crowd, and remember, the crowds are growing more hostile now. He's in Jerusalem. He says, Your father Abraham. Rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And the Jews must have scratched their heads. And some of them said, You're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, what? I am. am." Identifying himself as Yahweh, I am. We get the predictable reaction. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. That is where we left off in chapter 8. So, everybody still have, do you have John 9 in your laps yet? Good. I didn't have to tell you. That was wonderful. Good job, guys. Here's what I want to do in the first half of the message. I want to, I want to look at these 12 verses, this healing narrative, from two distinct perspectives. And the reason why we're going to take extra time today to go through this story in detail is because this healing story is the basis for the entire chapter, chapter 9 of John. So we're going to look at it very, very deeply. First, let's try to put on the sandals of this blind man. Let's try to put on the sandals of this blind man and feel and hear the story from his perspective. Now, There are many birth defects and disabilities that can strike a person. And we're going to talk about disabilities and God's plan on the second half of the message. But for now, understand that blindness is a very, very heavy burden, and especially in the ancient world. Blindness cuts a person off from so many of the very simple pleasures that the rest of us enjoy, that that we take for granted. It makes everything in life just so much more difficult. And perhaps worst of all, it locks a person into a very narrow world of just their own. And so, Today, as technology has grown, we've been able to develop certain things that lessen that burden. But in the ancient world, there were no tools to help this man navigate his way through life. So if you were blind in the first century in Jerusalem, you'd be hopelessly dependent upon other people. No way to earn a living. No way to have a family of your own. You would end up, as this man did, having to beg for alms just to survive. Relying upon the charity of others. And you can only imagine how devastating this would be to a man's image of himself. How hard you'd have to fight to overcome constant depression and loneliness. The hopeless feeling that you would have. People walking by you day after day, not even noticing you. Not even noticing you. You sort of disappear into the landscape of a city like Jerusalem. No meaningful social interactions. Almost no physical contact with other people just an outcast to be stepped over and ignored. Now, it's very possible that this man stationed himself somewhere outside the temple. That would have been a good spot to choose so that some of the worshipers coming by might, might throw him a scrap of something. And so on this particular day, he makes his way to his spot, and maybe this was his designated spot. It's even possible that he was in the very spot that he would have to sleep in every single night. Every single night. Keep in mind that, Most beggars have an advantage when they can see their targets. Think about that. They can spot a regular giver coming their way. They can make eye contact with somebody and see if they're sympathetic. It's a huge advantage over somebody who is blind, who has to rely on their hearing to what's going on around them. So try to picture the scene on this day. This blind man is sitting there, hopeless, dejected, and he hears footsteps coming his way, and then something that gives him hope, the footsteps stop nearby. There's no doubt he sensed that. And in his mind, he says, I've actually been seen by somebody. What a revelation. And then he hears a conversation take a place about sin, about his sin, about his parents' sin. And someone is referring to one of the guys in this group as a rabbi. Now imagine how many disparaging comments This man had heard over the years of his begging. In general, people who are blind from birth, they develop greater hearing than the average person. So this man has heard a lot, and much of it probably not kind. So as this conversation continues, you can imagine how he's feeling about it. Is this just more cruelty from another group of people who want to use me as an object of their curiosity, an object of their scorn? On the other hand, maybe he thought, well, at least they've stopped. It's possible I'm going to get a handout here. And then suddenly he can sense that one of the men has drawn very close to his face and he hears him spit. Now it's possible that he he reacted to that because my guess is he'd been spat on before. So to suddenly have this person draw near you and spit probably shocked him a bit. But the spitting man, he does something on the ground after that. And before he can figure out or discern what's really going on, Two clumps of mud are applied to his eyes. What was he thinking? Suddenly, boom, he feels the pressure and this mud on his face. Again, is this some kind of cruel joke? Did this group of men stop to mock me by doing this? Or is it possible that he felt Jesus' touch as friendly and reassuring? We don't know for sure. Did the weight of the clay give him some sense that maybe whatever was happening to him was Something that was going to be good. John doesn't tell us. But then this man, and at this point he probably knows it's the rabbi, and it becomes clear later on that he hears the name Jesus being spoken. This rabbi instructs him to make his way down to the pool of Siloam to wash this mud from his eyes. What a moment in the life of this man, this outcast. Now pause there for a second. Did you catch in verse 7 what the word Siloam means? Jesus said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated what? Sent. Ah, and there's the answer to the underground question from this past Wednesday. I asked the question, what does the word Siloam mean in Hebrew? Now, it means sent. So congratulations to Jeff Steele for getting it right. From this point forward, I'm banning all elders from answering these questions. Uh, The only reason... He's going to get a prize from the underground, but only because nobody else got it. But thank you to everybody that texted me an answer and and gave a shot. Um, I appreciated that, but Jeff Steele got it right. Siloam is a transliteration from Hebrew to Greek. Interestingly, both Isaiah and Nehemiah refer to the pool, and they call it in Hebrew, Shiloach, which means to be sent. Okay. So catch the wordplay that's being done here. This is very important. Jesus who says in this passage, I was sent by the Father, now sends this man to the pool of the scent. So there's a wordplay going on here. Okay, back to the story. Notice that the blind man, let me get me off the screen. There. That's good. Notice that the blind man received no promise from Jesus that a miracle was coming. Right? There's no, there's no promise. In fact, this rabbi that he had heard the name Jesus says nothing more to him. Neither do the others, they simply just move on, right? So in that moment, if you're the blind beggar, again, put yourself in his sandals. You've got this mud on your face. You're not sure what's happening. What do you do now? Just flick it out of your eyes? Or do you follow his instructions? Now, there's differing, differing opinions among scholars about exactly what motivates this man to do as Jesus instructed. Why would he do that? Number one, did it? was it obedience by faith? Did he realize what was going on? Again, John doesn't give us a lot of details, so we can only raise the questions. Remember, he wasn't verbally promised anything. Or did he say, I just need to get the mud out of my eyes, and the pool of Siloam was an option? John doesn't tell us. Let's pause for a moment and talk about the pool of Siloam itself. Here's the one thing you need to know. That pool was not just a few steps away from the temple. Okay, this was going to be a long journey. The Pool of Siloam was located on the southern slope of what we call the Old City, or the City of David, just inside the southeast southeast wall of Jerusalem. The pool had been built 700 years before this by King Hezekiah. You recall the story of Hezekiah's tunnel, how he wanted to bring water from... He tapped into a natural spring outside the city walls to bring the water inside the walls so that they could withstand a siege. He could bring water into the city, so he built a tunnel bore it out of bedrock to to bring this water in. So the water that came from what's called the Gihon Spring would enter into the city, travel about 600 yards down this slope and pool at the bottom at this place called Siloam. Now, some of you have been to to Israel. I've taken that trip from the temple to the Pool of Siloam many times with different tour groups, and it is not an easy walk for people who can see. (laughs) I'm telling you, it is not simple. There would have been many, many obstacles for this blind man to deal with. Not to mention the slope and the distance. He had to be committed to it. This is why a lot of people look at it and go, he must have known something was going on for him to to not find an easier solution than walking all the way to the Pool of Siloam. Now here's the archaeological story behind the Pool of Siloam. Scholars were pretty sure they knew where it was, but it had not been found until the year 2004. That's amazing. It took 2,000 years to actually dig up this pool. And it was dug up under interesting circumstances. A construction crew was sent to work on a drain pipe in the modern city. And as they were digging, and this happens a lot in Jerusalem, they begin to dig and dink, (laughs) they run into something and they go, oh, that looks old. And so they called the archaeologists in, and experts knew almost immediately that this was a monumental pool from the Second Temple period. Within just a few months, they had identified it as the Pool of Siloam. So eventually they began to dig it out, and they found out the length of this pool is 225 feet. That's 75 yards. So think about the length of this pool is three-quarters the size of a football field. It is a massive, massive pool. Let me give you some pictures. Okay, first of all, uh, this is the, the, the great model in Jerusalem, the model of first-century Jerusalem that is outside the Israel Museum when you go to the land. See the people on the left? That's how big this model is. Okay, It's giant. It's, you can walk around it. It's amazing. So you see the temple right here in the foreground? That's where the Pool of Siloam is located, where that yellow arrow is. Now there's some structures that are is prohibiting us seeing it. This angle will help you more. There's the Pool of Siloam. You see it circled there in, uh, circled there in yellow. So again, the Gion Spring would come in south of the temple and flow down this slope down into the pool of Siloam. And then right outside there is what we call the water gate, which makes sense, right? So that's the distance that this man traveled. Now in terms of pictures of the archaeology, this is the first thing. This was 2004, the first thing they dug up. And they said, okay, that looks old. And then they began to uncover it, and they found this massive amount of of second temple century stones surrounding it. And then this picture is really neat. This is just from a couple years ago, after some really heavy rains in Israel, you begin to see the size of this pool. And this is not even all of it. They got, they still need all that green stuff. They still need to push further in to get to the entire size of the pool. It is a massive pool. So when you picture the Pool of Siloam, um, make sure you get a, a, a good image of just how big this really is. It is really something. Now, quick personal story. Tandy and I were in Israel right after this pool was discovered, and barely any of it was visible yet. And I'll tell you why this this is a little bit personal for me. That year, our guide, our our contact in Israel, uh, she knew that I was a geek, uh, a history geek. And she knew that at the time I was teaching intertestamental history here at Masters. So she surprised me on the day we came to Jerusalem here. She introduced me to the head of the dig, the archaeological dig, Representing Israel, and got me behind the barriers of the dig to meet him and to tour the site, which was amazing. It was literally the biggest nerd moment of my life. I got to spend 30 minutes with the head archaeologist on this project, and he showed me around, and it was amazing. And then the coolest part was, as we were saying goodbye, he digs into his pocket and he, he pulls out a handful of ancient coins that they had found at the dig. If you don't know, at digs, that's the most common thing that they find is coins because they last forever. They find sh- uh, pottery shards as well, but coins are very common. So he, he, my eyes light up. I'm like, oh, look at those coins. He goes, would you like a couple of them? So yeah, so I brought home two coins that day from, straight from the earth from that day from the pool of Siloam. In fact, I'll give you pictures of the two coins that I, that I possess. I have them with me this morning. If you, want, if you want to come up after the service and hold something that was present on the earth before Jesus came the first time, I have them in my pocket. You can come talk to me. So this is really nerdy. The, the one on the left... The one on the left is, now, he said, go ahead and pick them. They were pretty dirty, so I couldn't really see what I was, I could barely make some things out. And I didn't want to sit there and go, you know, spread them out. And I, I didn't want to make a big deal. I'm trying to just go, thank you. So I grabbed, the one on the left is from Ptolemy II. Okay, Ptolemy II. So we're talking 3rd century BC, before Christ. Yeah, really, really old. This is when the Ptolemies were ruling over the Jews back in the day. This is Ptolemy Philadelphus, the man who built the great, uh, Library of Alexandria, and ruled over the Jews. So what you see there is his image on the left, and then you have this eagle riding on a lightning bolt. That was very common for, for uh, Egyptian leaders. So that's the one. The other one, this is a Roman denarius. By the way, both of them are made of bronze. That's a Roman denarius. I wanted it a denarius really badly. Um, I thought I was grabbing one from the time of Christ. It's not. It's actually 3rd century AD. The, the, the head of the dig said this is from Claudius, and I went, <gasps> okay, so Claudius is right after Nero, right? So I was like, I, the Julio-Claudian dynasty, that's the one I wanted. And then I found out, as I cleaned it up later on, it's actually Claudius II um, from, from about 275 AD. He's known as Gothicus because he was the great conqueror of the Goths uh, on behalf of the Romans. What you have there then is his image, and that's the goddess Isis, uh, who's holding uh, sort of this, this magic rattle and a basket, I've done way too much research on this, so I'm, I'm just giving you the, the basics here. But obviously, Claudius was a, a pagan, right? And we know that during his period, he was a persecutor of the church. He lived at the same time as Cyprian of Carthage, who was one of the great uh, church fathers of that period. So again, if you want to see one of these afterwards, uh, just let me know. Okay, let's get, can we get back on track now, please? <laughs> you nerds. Okay, John reports then at the end of verse seven, look at it, this is so key. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. That is one of the great understatements of Scripture. That's it. He went away and washed and came back seeing. So much symbolism here, you guys. First of all, as I said, Jesus sends the man to the pool of the scent. And then second, don't forget what we just learned back in October, that during the water ceremony of the Feast of Tabernacles, it was the pool of Siloam that the priest went to to collect that water. That was poured out on the altar. Why? To commemorate the faithfulness of God to his people. So that's number two. Third, and most importantly, Jesus says it I am the light of the world, and here he is bringing light to this man. What a scene, right? Restoring light to this man who had been born into darkness. Jesus does all this, not just for the benefit of this man, but for the benefit of his disciples to see this word picture come to life. Amazing. Now, put yourself back in the man's sandals. As far as we can tell, He fumbles his way down to the pool of Siloam all by himself. The crowd doesn't follow. There's no witness to this miracle except himself. And he washes away the mud. And he sees. Can you imagine? I mean, sometimes we read right over these narratives and keep going. Can you imagine what this man felt in that moment to see for the first time ever? How many of you guys have ever gone on YouTube and watched videos of people who they put on special glasses and for the first time, they can see color, and people just weep. I, I recommend you, it will just bring tissue when you do it. But just, just people who are colorblind who can suddenly see color, they just begin to weep because everything just suddenly becomes Full and complete in their sight. Or you hear, have you seen the little little babies? For the first time they hear, they put headphones on them. Even adults, for the first time in their life, they're able to hear, and people lose it because those senses are so important to us. So imagine this guy now seeing for the first time. He sees light. He sees other people's faces. He would have no idea what they look like. He sees that water, that beautiful water from the pool. He sees the sky. All these things he sees for the first time. All the things that at one point he could only feel or bump into, he now sees. Imagine him going back into the city now, just in awe of everything that he sees as he goes back into the city, pausing to gaze at everything. The moment a man or woman meets Jesus, that's what's being described here. And the scales fall from the eyes, and light is given, and we receive it. It's, this is just a beautiful picture. Now, let's look from the other angle. Let's look at the story from the disciples' perspective. Let's, let's take a look at that. All of this starts with Jesus. Now, I know we say this a lot at Oak Hill. It always starts with God, right? He's the great initiator of all things. This story begins with Jesus. Jesus sees the man, right? That's what John tells us. As he passed by or as he went along, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. So the man didn't cry out to Jesus. He didn't ask for anything. He didn't ask for a miracle. Jesus simply stops. And Jesus sees him. Now, did the disciples notice him? Probably not. I'm sure that like any disciples, you're following the master and you're all wrapped up in what he's saying and you're watching him. And you know what? Beggars are pretty standard in Jerusalem. So like so many other people, they probably didn't notice him at all. But Jesus stops, and then they see him. Jesus points his followers to this man. But then in verse 3, you see their, uh, their sort of callous attitude. They look at this beggar and say, well, here's an interesting opportunity for a theological case study. How often do we do that? Rather than thinking about the person, we think about, well, How do I process this intellectually? Rabbi, what caused this blindness? Who sinned, him or his parents? And so behind their question is a very common understanding in in ancient Israel, this idea that there is a direct correlation between sin and suffering. We see this most obviously in the book of Job, right? You remember his friends who constantly said, Job, tell us, you must have done something to deserve this. To most Jews in the first century, this man would not have been politely called disabled, would not have been politely called unfortunate. He was to be scorned as a sinner who was getting what he deserves. Think about that. And so in their minds, why would you give charity to somebody who's under the discipline of God? So the disciples have been impacted by that teaching, as we all are by our worlds, right? We're impacted by things. They want an explanation now. From Jesus what's the cause of this but instead of Jesus talking about causation what he does is explain it in terms of purpose that's really important to understand verse 3 neither one Jesus says you're wrong on both counts neither one here's the key statement this blindness was given so that the works of God might be displayed in him underline that in your in your Bibles highlight it this is so important Jesus explains it in terms of purpose So the key to unlocking this theological case study is not necessarily a past cause. It's a future purpose that God has. That is key to understand. The question that everybody wants to talk about in the story, we sometimes walk right past that, which I think is the most important part of the text. But everybody wants to talk about the mud and the spit. (laughs) Why the mud and the spit? It's such an unusual way to heal, isn't it? Why not just speak a word of healing? Jesus has done that already. If we remember back in chapter 5 at the pool of Bethesda, a different pool, he said to the lame man, get up and walk. It was just with a word this guy was healed. But not here. Here, Jesus involves saliva, dirt, and water. And it appears to the reader that Jesus doesn't like to fall into predictable patterns. You never see him using the same means or the same method when he heals. Four times in the gospel, by the way, he heals blindness, but never in the same way. And this one is very, very unique. Obviously, Jesus, who's the very Son of God, isn't restricted in the ways that he can heal, right? He doesn't need physical props to do miracles. And the healing he brought was not from some type of, you know, magical uh, amulet or spell or process or anything. It's just the power of God. But this is the way he chooses to do it. Now, this is speculation, but to me what this... The, part of that is it sends the message that Jesus approaches each one of us as individuals in our own unique way. Think about all the different ways that we've been saved. Every story here is absolutely unique in how we met Jesus and how he saved us. And here we see in every miracle situation he's going to tailor the way he does miracles to the individual. To me that's very, very comforting. He doesn't just see you as some mass body. He sees you as individual believers who are then brought together into a body. But he approaches us, each of us individually. What we do see plainly in the text is Jesus' motivation. Verses four and five, Jesus says, look, guys, we must do the works of him who sent me, including this work right here with this blind man. We must do these works as long as it is day because night is coming when nobody can work. While I am in the world, I'm the light of the world. Now, notice the pronouns. Look at verse 4. We must do the works of God. Jesus says, Look, I'm going to do this work. I go before you. I give you the example, but this is a we thing. As my disciples, you too must work while it's daytime because night will come for you as well. A true disciple of Jesus is not a spectator, he's a worker. And Jesus is almost, he's projecting almost a post-resurrection mindset here to say, guys, my nighttime is coming. I'm going to pass away, right? I'm going to die. He doesn't yet talk about resurrection and all that. But someday you're going to have to do these works because you're my followers. So we need to do God's work while we can, while it's daytime, before night comes, right? Jesus is hinting here that my time is short. But there's also this, it's also, time is also short for Israel. Right, The kingdom of God promised through the prophets has dawned, and while Jesus is still walking the earth, there is still time for Israel, but that time is drawing short. So Jesus instructs the man now to go and wash at the pool of Siloam. Right? And he and his disciples keep going. Right? I want you to go wash. Jesus and the disciples take off. Now, question, was there a follow-up conversation? If you were one of the disciples, would you have said, Whoa, Jesus, I have questions. <laughs> right? Yeah, I don't think there there couldn't have been. That's a terrible double negative. There had to have been questions, but but John doesn't report it. Remember the situation here. The Jewish establishment is seeking to eliminate Jesus. This healing takes place on the Sabbath. Did you see that in the text? This is the second time that he has healed a man on the Sabbath. He is poking a stick into the eye of the Pharisees here. But this one is much more under the radar. He doesn't attract attention to himself. As I said, nobody in the crowd followed him to witness it. By the time people realize what's happened, Jesus is long gone. He's left the scene. And then verses 8 through 12, we get a little bit of a PS to the story, right? It tells the story of the locals. You know the locals always know what's going on, right? It's the locals. If you really want to know what's happening, go talk to the locals. They know this beggar. They know he's been around, right? Right? So there's no denying that a miracle has taken place, but the details are so fuzzy, right? And so you have to imagine they're trying to process this. We've known this guy for years. We know he was blind since birth. How is this possible? It's actually fairly comical, isn't it? Right? They go from the from questions. Well, who was healed? Are you sure that's him? To, well, how did this happen? To, well, who did it? And the formerly blind guys out there going, no, I'm the one. It's me. Look, I can see. Almost like he's got to sell people because they're so disbelieving. He's like, no, I'm the one, but I don't even know how it happened. And you can picture people going, well, tell us. He's like, well, this guy came by, put mud on my eyes. I washed in the pool of Sloan. His name's Jesus. That's all I know. I don't know where he is. I don't even know what he looks like. Think about that. I can't even identify the man who has healed me. Now, before we sing together, here's something you have to know. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we see the blind receiving sight. Nowhere. Nowhere after this do we see the disciples being able to give sight to the blind. This miracle is exclusive to Jesus. That's very, very important. What we do read in the Old Testament is that God gives sight to the blind. What we do read in the Old Testament is the promised Messiah Will give sight to the blind. So, this healing is another of these great signs, the sixth of seven signs that tell us that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. Amen? So, the question that we have all asked ourselves, and if you haven't yet, you will at some point, is this question Why does a good God permit things like blindness to happen and disabilities? Why does he permit these things to happen? Why allow that type of suffering? And it gets even harder when you start to think about babies and children. Why would God allow birth defects? Disabilities in children. Why allow such things to turn into a lifetime of suffering? As it did in this man in our story this morning. We know that every type of disability comes with a heavy heavy cost in every way, emotional, relational, financial, and that every disability has its own unique sorrows and difficulties. There are things that are always present. They just they never go away. You don't get a break from it. It's just ever-present, both for the one who is directly suffering and also for those who are the caregivers for those who are suffering. And the question must always be on the mind of folks that that struggle with these things. Why me? Why? I didn't ask for this, God. Why can't I be born like everyone else? And one of the reasons why the Bible is so loved and so trusted is it doesn't shy away from hard questions like that. It doesn't sweep painful or controversial things under the rug. In fact, the Bible is filled with all kinds of stories of people who went through great amounts of sorrow and suffering. Stories designed to shed light on those big why questions that we all have. If you're the only person here this morning who's like, am I I the only person that asks these questions? No, we all do. Because we have such a limited view, right, of, of both what's happening today and a limited view of eternity. So we're all asking these questions. But the Bible gives us answers. Now, granted, the answers we get, the, the reasons, the purpose behind all of these things, they're not always easy to accept. And we can be honest about that as well. That, again, from our, our limited, finite perspective, they're not always easy to accept. They're things that have to be wrestled with. Let me say that again. This is true for all of us. These are things we have to wrestle with. And ultimately, as we work through them, with Scripture, with prayer, with The help of others in the body, ultimately they have to be submitted to. Ultimately they have to be submitted to, as hard as that may be, because we understand who God is. We understand that He's good and that He's sovereign. So if we want to think rightly about these issues, we always have to start at the beginning. We talked about it last week. If you want to understand sexuality and gender, what do you do? You go back to the beginning right? Before the fall, before corruption took place. We have to go back to the beginning. And just a word of warning, and I know I say this a lot. I know I sound like a broken record. If you don't start at the right place, you're not going to end up at the right place. True? And if you don't end up at the right place on hard issues like this, there's a chance that you are going to despair over the things that you see in this world. Friends, the world is broken. It's broken. And sin affects every single one of us, believer and unbeliever. In the big picture, all suffering, all disabilities, all flaws, all shortcomings, all evil can be connected back to the beginning, to the fall in the garden. All of it. If there had never been sin, we would not be suffering today. And just because you may have escaped having a birth defect or some physical disability doesn't mean that you've escaped other types of frailties, And weaknesses and inclinations towards sin. We all feel it. So as a general truth, know that the existence of sin in the world is the cause of all suffering in the world. That's where you've got to start. Now, when we come to a story like the one we're covering today, the question comes up, what about specific sins and specific illnesses? Okay? Is specific sickness and suffering attributable to specific sin? And the answer is sometimes no as in the case with this man that we see in the story in John 9. But sometimes, yes, we have to acknowledge that. By the way, this is a complex issue. This is a complex issue. But sometimes, yes, sometimes human beings do have lives filled with suffering and sickness as a direct result of the sinful choices they make. For the unbeliever, it's as simple as what we read in Romans 1, that God gives them over to the things that they really love, the things that are bad for them. And Romans 1 says they receive in themselves the appropriate penalty for their error. And that should be terrifying. To anybody who doesn't know Christ, that should be terrifying. That God will eventually give a person over to their truest desires, whatever they worship, and it won't end well. For believers, we too suffer from our sinful choices in a sort of uh, sowing and reaping kind of way. Because every time a believer dabbles in sin, bad things happen. Right? Every time a believer dabbles in sin, troublesome consequences are on the way. And on top of that, we the Bible tells us that we might find ourselves on the fatherly end of some discipline from God, which we should desire, we should want, right? Because He's a good God. He's a good father. And that can come in a variety of forms according to God's refining purposes. But in terms of the the disciples' question to Jesus, yes, it is also true that a parent sin can cause all kinds of sickness and suffering. Think about the physical impact on a baby that's born to a drug-addicted mom or an alcoholic mom. Think about the emotional impact of a child being born into a home where there is emotional abuse or, or physical abuse or sexual abuse. Devastating. Parenting does matter in the scheme of things. But here's the thing, even though we're aware of all of those possibilities, without having divine knowledge of causation, which only God ultimately knows, right? We have to be very cautious about making assumptions and judging others. But again, think of Job's friends, how miserably they failed in this. So we ought not to run out pointing fingers and and, and coming to conclusions because we don't have divine knowledge all the time, right? We don't understand all of the complex workings behind the scenes. But then there's this reality, and this is the one we see here in John 9. It can be tough for people to accept. Sometimes sickness and suffering are given, I'm going to get you this statement, are given to us by God and by His design for His good purposes and for our ultimate benefit. Just drink that in for a second. That's hard, isn't it? Sometimes sickness and suffering are given to us by God and by his design for his good purposes and our ultimate benefit. I'll give you a couple of examples. Paul's thorn in the flesh is a really, really good example. We don't exactly know what that thorn was, that God, put, God gave it to him, right? You're like, wait, hold on, Paul, I mean, find, other than Jesus, find me a better Christian. And God gave him a thorn, Now, we don't know what it was specifically. A lot of scholars think it was a physical handicap. Some even think it was eyesight. Others believe it might have been a spiritual struggle that was recurring in his life. But we're told in 2 Corinthians 12 that even though Paul asked God to remove it, God said no, it was going to remain there by God's design and for God's purpose because Paul needed to stay humble. He'd been given too much. In terms of visions and information, and to keep him humble, God said, you need that. Think about that for a second. This is the best thing for you, Paul, because it's going to cause you to be dependent on me. You needed that. That's, God knows the plan. He knows everything that we need, right? And when, when we selfishly go, well, I know what I need too, and it's all really good stuff. I just need blessing. Blessing. I just need comfort. God says, no. Like a parent, a little kid, I want cookies for breakfast. No. No. No, God said no. The story of Joseph is a prime example. Joseph suffers greatly at the hands of his own brothers as a part of God's overall plan to bless his people Israel, to prosper them. And God peels back the curtain in Genesis 50 to show us the cause of this, the reason for it. God says, Joseph's brothers meant evil towards you, but I meant it for good. I meant it for my purposes. And in that we see, yeah, God ordained Joseph's suffering. He ordained Joseph's suffering for a greater case. Job, obvious example, the misery that that poor man went through, he didn't even get a reason why. He didn't no understanding why this was happening to him. But God had a reason for it. Ultimately, God said, I will restore your prosperity. I will restore your health. But wow, he went through some hard times. Now, in the case of our blind man in John 9, like Joseph and Paul and Job, we don't have to speculate about the cause of the suffering because Jesus makes it very clear. He says it, right? Here's the statement. So that the works of God might be displayed. You, You had a birth defect. You were born blind. You have suffered all these years from it. For this reason, so that my works, my power, my glory might be seen through you. Raise your hand if you think that's hard to accept. We're all thinking it. It's hard. It's hard. Now, some people really struggle. People will affirm the story of Job, people affirm the story of Joseph and Paul. But the idea that God wills that a, a baby would be born blind, that a child would suffer this way, so that God could show himself at some future time, for some people, they're like, that's a bridge too far. I can't take that. But that's exactly what Jesus said. This is the tension, right? See, there's many people that they'll, that they'll say they love the doctrine of God's sovereignty, but then they'll balk at it in certain situations. And I understand why, because this is emotional, And it's personal, especially if you're a mom or a dad, right? This is really hard. I understand why people balk at it. But when we balk at the truth, at what Scripture says, and we we string together systematic theology to understand how God is operating, we can get to a place where we have too big a view of man and too little a view of God. Or too big of a view of this life and not big enough view of what's to come. Don't get lost in that. Make sure you have your priorities straight. One of the ways folks will try to escape this teaching is to say, well, here's what really happened. God was able to locate this man and use his blindness for his glory, but he didn't ordain the blindness from the beginning. That's usually the explanation. That doesn't work. Ultimately, that doesn't work. And it it contradicts the plain teaching of Scripture. If you say God had no divine purpose in this blindness, he simply found the blindness and used it, you still haven't explained the cause behind it and you still haven't answered the disciples actual question which is what caused this to happen you're just saying jesus stumbled upon it and used it but you haven't answered the question what caused it and as much as we might wince at the answer jesus really does give it to us there this man's blindness had a purpose built into it god from the beginning understood what he was going to do through this man how he was going to reveal his glory. By the way, the story of this man is still being passed down 2,000 years later to today. That is a great purpose that God had in this man's blindness. Remember, nothing escapes God's attention, not one little detail. So he knows exactly what's going on at the moment a child is conceived. He is aware of all of the moving parts. The psalmist says, you form my inward parts, Lord. You wove me in my mother's womb. So there's no accident or mishap taking place with this particular man. God's sovereignty reigned over him on the day he was conceived, on the day he was born, during all those years that he struggled, during all those years that his parents had to care for him. God was still sovereign. God's plan was still sovereignly in place on the day that Jesus gave him his sight. That's the biblical truth. I'll never forget, I think I've told this story, but it's been a few years. I was once at a funeral and it was, a, it, was a, it was a tragic death. A woman had died in her 40s from cancer, gone too soon, all of that stuff. Tragic death, very, very sad. And this well-meaning officiant got up there and he said this. I wrote it down later. He said, this death was not God's will. God did not want this to happen. And I thought to myself, well, okay, that raises some questions. Chief among them is this, is there a force out there more powerful than God causing these things to happen? Can God's sovereign rule be defeated? Can his will be overthrown? Now, I know what this guy was trying to do. He was speaking to unbelievers and he was doing everything he could to try to make them feel better on that very difficult day. I get that. But we ought not speak unbiblical things either at funerals. Hmm. The way he explained it it means either God couldn't defeat the cancer or he chose not to intervene and either way that makes God either weak or uncaring. It is far more rational and far more biblical to point out the obvious. God is all-powerful. He is utterly good in all of his workings and that means yes, he does ordain all things. Even if we can't see the reason in this time on the earth and that's Listen, I lost a brother-in-law at the age of 36. I wrestled with this. It made no sense. He left a one-year-old baby. I, I get it. At the time, we couldn't see the reasons. Have we seen the reasons since then? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is hard stuff. He ordains all things. Yes, even birth defects and cancer and every other form of sickness and suffering. Listen, Scripture, I'll give you a couple passages that, again, wrestle with these things. Isaiah 45. God says, I am the Lord, there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Exodus, Yahweh says to Moses, who has made man's mouth or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? It is, it is. Now, God's not the efficient cause of sin. I, again, I'm, now I'm going to make the, the very important theological distinction. He's not the efficient cause of sin we are, <laughs> human beings. But in granting Adam and Eve a will of their own and in ordaining that they would fall into sin, God has both decreed the effects of the fall and in His mercy limited the effects of the fall. All of it's under his control. So the blindness is for God's glory. The thorn in the flesh is for God's glory. The calamities of this life, yes, are for God's glory. He is always sovereign. He is always at work. Paul understood that. This is how Paul, when you read Paul's perspective on life and death, it blows you away. For Paul, God was very, very big. And this life was nothing compared to what he expected to find after death. That's why he said, momentary light affliction. This is a guy who went through way more than anybody in this room. (laughs) Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, he wrote. Do you believe that? So here's where we have to get. God is good and glorious when he heals. Amen? Just like he did with this man in John 9. God is also good and glorious when he chooses not to heal, but gives us grace sufficient to bear up under that trial. Period. And then let me go a step further. Because when we talk about these things, we often talk about, oh, how hard this is. And how hard it is on disabled people. Can I just say that God has not only given us grace to endure these things, but to shine through them. And that we sometimes forget that disabled people live incredibly joyful lives. Sometimes more joyful than the rest of us. I'm going to share a few examples of that. People with disabilities often develop inner qualities of peace and joy and strength that we don't develop. Those of us who don't have that disability. Because we don't have to because we have it so easy, comparatively speaking. Some of you know the story of Fanny Crosby, right? Who wrote Blessed Assurance. She was blind. And when she was eight years old, eight years old, she wrote this. Oh, what a happy child I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep inside because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. She lived 94 years on this earth with that beautiful spirit always intact. Most of us are aware of Johnny Johnny Erickson Tata, right? We've had people, we still have people that work for Johnny and Friends and have worked at Johnny and Friends in our body. Her spirit and suffering is amazing. And and I could pick any number of quotes from her. There's too many. But I'll, I'll, I'll give you my favorite because it's just so darn biblical. But listen to what she has said. She said, the Bible says that it has been given to us to suffer. Now she's gone through a lot. I can't, even, I, can't even, I can't even fathom the suffering this woman has gone through in her life. And she says it. She acknowledges the biblical truth. The Bible says it has been given to us to suffer for his sake. So she says, so my wheelchair is a gift from God. A gift. I never would have chosen this gift. Here's honesty, right? never would have chosen this gift, but since God chose it for me, I will take it as a gift as hard as it has been. She goes on, I, will always, I, I always say that in a way I hope I can take my wheelchair to heaven with me. I know that's not biblically correct, but if I were able, I would have my wheelchair up in heaven right next to me when God gives me my brand new glorified body. I knew I wasn't going to get through this. And I will then turn to Jesus and say, Lord, do you see that wheelchair right there? You were right when you said in this world we will have trouble because that wheelchair was a lot of trouble. But Jesus, the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. So thank you. She says, thank you. Thank you for what you did in my life through that wheelchair and now you can send it to hell if you want. <laughs> so good. I read an account this week of a couple in the church in Indiana. Blew me away. Both the husband and wife are blind. And they serve faithfully in this church. And and to listen to their words, both of them think their blindness is an advantage. The husband was born blind, so he says that he has the advantage because he can't comprehend life with sight, so he feels no loss. I feel about this big when I hear that, right? The wife lost her sight when she was young. She says she has the advantage because even though she's lost something, she can still imagine in her mind how things look when they're described to her. Both of them love life. I also read the story of an amazing pastor. His name is... Travis Peterson, he was born with a genetic disorder to the eyes that left him blind from infancy. Hasn't stopped him one bit. He was a pastor of an English-speaking church in South Korea for a time. Now he pastors a church outside of Chicago. He tells the story the very first time that he realized that God could use him. He was in seminary. He said, one of my classmates in seminary told me he had been watching me over the semester. He was deeply convicted that if I could work through my difficulties to do what needed to be done to get through seminary, that he had no excuse for being lazy in his own studies. So good. He says, right then and there, I finally understood how God might use my weakness to encourage, challenge, and motivate other believers. Then he said this, and this blew me me away. He said, the biggest blessing of my blindness, he called it a blessing. The biggest blessing of my blindness is this. When God accomplishes something through me, nobody thinks how great I am. They see that if God can use a blind man, he can use anyone. He says, think about the weaknesses you have. Reflect on the hardships you faced. Then ask yourself, are these hindrances to ministry or avenues through which God can bring glory to himself? Beautiful design God has. Even in the hard stuff, it's beautiful. Friends, listen. Ultimately, one day, God is going to wipe away every tear, all sickness and all suffering. That's the hope that we have. There will no longer be mourning or crying or pain. For the former things have passed away. And in the meantime, as we wait to finally be at home with Christ, we can know that we're never alone in it because Christ never leaves our side, even in the sickness, even in the sorrow, even in the suffering. And he will work his divine purposes through it. You can bet on that. He will work his purposes through it. So how do you view human suffering? That's the question I want you to take home today. We're going to spend more time in chapter 9 to flesh out some other things. How do you view human suffering? It's not simple, is it? How in the past have you interpreted your particular challenges? Your disabilities. Maybe not physical, but your disabilities. How have you viewed those? As obstacles to your faith, to your ministry, or as opportunities For God to fulfill his plan through you in the midst of this fallen world. I want to close with with Paul's words. He writes this to the Philippians. I'm going to paraphrase it. Paul says, I want you to know that my situation, my suffering in prison, has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Amen. How? The cause of Christ has become well known throughout the Praetorian Guard and to everyone else here in Rome. Remember how badly Paul wanted to get to Rome and spread the gospel? He did, but in prison, in suffering. He says, not only that, but other brothers have now become more courageous in speaking about God without fear. He says, so yes, I will rejoice. I'm suffering. This is hard. I want to be out there. Being in prison is no fun, but I will rejoice, for I know that with all boldness, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, and for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Friends, that, as Christians, is our unique perspective on the world. Nobody else thinks that way. That's our unique perspective. It's not easy. I'm not, don't walk away and go, boy, Jeff made this whole suffering thing seem really easy. It's not. But yes, life in this world can be very hard. For some, it can be unfathomably difficult. Paul knew that. Paul lived that. Yet in our suffering and in our striving and in our stumbling, in our victories and all that, we can rest that in God's goodness and in his sovereignty, he is at work. We can know that. So don't despair. Whatever you see out there in the world, whatever questions come up, whatever you might be wrestling with, do not despair in the days that you're given on the earth. The light of the world has chosen you and he's given you light. So see his hand moving in your life. See how He's shaping you. See what He's calling you to. And watch to see how His his purposes in your disability unfold. And know that someday He will wipe away every tear. And by faith, we will enter into the joy of our salvation. That's the big picture. Let's pray. God, it's it's not always easy... It's not always easy for us down here. You know that. You took on flesh. You walked down here. You sympathize with our weaknesses. I know that you know this, Lord, but sometimes we're down here and we just cry out, Lord, what's going on? And why are we going through these things? And why does it have to be so hard? I'm just so grateful, Lord, that in your word you've given us the light that we need to say, this is what's happening. God is at work. So we praise you for all the ways that you are working through us and our. Our frailties, our weaknesses, yes, our disabilities. Even through hard things like birth defects, you are glorifying yourself. Lord, help that to be the the, the single thing that drives us in our lives, that you would be glorified. And do so in our lives, do so through this church. And Lord, even as we come back to sing now, that you would be present in our praises as we lift our hearts to you. Thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.